This is the Frankly Daniel Show, and I'm the Daniel and the Frankly part of this enterprise. It's my weekly exercise of our First Amendment rights, and it's an honor to be with you today. So much to cover, so much to say. Your time is precious, and I appreciate it. So let's jump right in. Today we're going to talk about reading, writing, and racism. Boy, oh boy, do I have a tale to share with you today. In fact, I have a couple of amazing stories, and I'm not joking. Today's main story is about a white woman who's also a teacher in Evanston, Illinois. Her name is Stacy DeMar. Let me be clear. Miss DeMar's story today has nothing to do with her being white or anything to do with me being white. This isn't a story of white woman prevailing over blackness or anything like that. This is a story of courage, and there are many, many more of these stories waiting to be heard. These are stories about parents battling with teachers, schools, and school boards about, you guessed it, critical race theory instruction to their children. There are black mothers taking up the same fight. For instance, there's Miss Gabrielle Clark, a black mother who sued the Democracy Prep School in Las Vegas, Nevada, on behalf of her son, William Clark, a senior at the school. She alleged the school gave her son a failing grade in his quote-unquote, sociology of change course, and threatened to prevent him from graduating because he refused to confess his white privilege. He refused to confess it openly and as demanded by the school. The course curriculum and the teacher said the same thing. He had to confess it. Well, here's, here's the deal. William Clark is biracial. His mother's black and his father, now deceased, was white. William has green eyes and blondish hair, and according to her complaint, it is generally regarded as white by his peers. William and his mother objected to the school's forced confessions of white privilege of William and asked for an alternative accommodation to meet the course requirement. The school told him that if he did not complete the course, he would not graduate, and they weren't kidding. Because he would not complete his required assignments, the teacher gave him a D- and a failing grade based on the school's standards, prompting her to file a federal suit in the United States District Court, District of Nevada. According to Clark's attorneys from Litigator Law, a nonprofit legal foundation, democracy prep violated William Clark's constitutional and statutory rights. The Clark's attorneys pointed to a 1943 Supreme Court decision, which was West Virginia versus Barnett complaining that forcing William Clark to publicly confess his identities as a white male Christian and then attach official derogatory labels to them violates the First Amendment's prohibition on compelled speech. In the Barnett case, the Supreme Court struck down West Virginia's mandatory flag salute requirement for public school students. In 1943, writing for the majority, Justice Robert H. Jackson said, if there is any fixed star in our constitutional constellation, it is that no official, high or petty, can prescribe what shall be orthodox in politics, nationalism, religion, or any other matter of opinion 
or force citizens to confess by word or act their faith therein. The Clark's lawyers also allege that the school's behavior created a hostile educational environment. (laughs) Isn't that curious? I'm sure you've heard of hostile work environment. In fact, you may be in one yourself at the moment. They said that the school was in violation of Title VI of the Civil Rights Act of 1964. Now, Title VI says, No person in the United States shall, on the ground of race, color, or national origin, be excluded from participation in, be denied of the benefits of, or be subjected to discrimination under any program or activity receiving federal financial assistance. Ms. Clark's attorneys also pointed out that the school actually encourages students to push back against school policy, but that when William Clark did so, they, they threatened and punished him. To be complete, the Clark's complaint contends the school's treatment of William also violates Title IX, which forbids sex discrimination. Designated William as a white oppressor based on his sex and gender, and categorizing and stereotyping those identities in a deliberately pejorative and offensive manner, constitutes sexual harassment under today's interpretation of Title IX. Remember, William just looks white, but he's biracial. Remember, President Obama had a black father and a white mother. He was also biracial, but he looked black. So which half of someone should we discriminate? Should we do it on the basis of their color and not their genetics? Big question mark. In response, school officials made two primary arguments. First, they said that schools have broad discretion over curriculum without running afoul of the First Amendment. Moreover, they contend that William Clark was not, in fact, compelled to speak at all because assignments did not require him to affirm his identities publicly and that he did not have to support any particular belief. In response, Clark's attorneys asserted William did have to affirm his identities to his teacher and to any other staff members who had access to his assignments. Moreover, Clark's attorneys stated, the course required all students to assess to a highly contested claims like people of color cannot be racist and only whites can be racist. Second, the Nevada Public Charter School, Democracy Prep, argued that giving a student a low grade and threatening to prevent him from graduating was only a discouragement, not a penalty. <laughs> Say what? <laughs> try, try, try applying for college or a job without a high school diploma and try to explain it's because y- you didn't want to uh, denounce your white privilege, even though you're half black. Oh, my nerves. Democracy Prep further argued. Uh, uh, hold, <laughs> hold on for a second. I just realized. Democracy Prep further argued. Uh, what irony this school selected democracy prep for its name? I mean, really? In any event, they argued the court would be in violation of its role to intervene. By stepping in would constitute acting as a super school board and directing professional educators to administer particular grades and teach courses using particular assignments or strategies. Ironically, the same issue was raised and rejected by the Supreme Court in the Barnett case back in 1943. Then the court ruled that the Constitution protects the citizen against the state itself and all of its creatures, boards of education not accepted. While the school complained that the Clarks had no case, the school officials decided, and this is probably a good idea, 
to relent in early April of this year and offer to expunge his grade and let him opt out of the course and therefore graduate. Undoubtedly, this retreat was encouraged by a federal judge's declaration at a February hearing that Clark was likely to succeed on the merits since the speeches likely compelled the defendants, that being the school, the judge said, the judge said this about the defendants, would therefore have to justify the curriculum under strict scrutiny tests. These tests are the court's most exacting level of review, which he said the class exercises probably would not survive these tests. Now, much of what I've just shared with you is from an excellent article published on May 19th of 2021 by Joshua Dunn in a journal entitled Education Next. Dr. Dunn is a professor of political science and the director of the Center for the Study of Government and the Individual at the University of Colorado in Colorado Springs. Now, I've used multiple sources to tell you this story, including the actual lawsuit filed by the Clarks with the U.S. Federal District Court in Nevada. The reason I've given so much time to this black mother and her white-skinned biracial son is that it exemplifies these types of conflicts, and there are more suits coming. The war has just begun. The takeaway from the Clarks litigation, in my opinion, is don't go poking Mama Bear or her cubs. So why? Why was it just one class and the school couldn't let it go and graduate William? It's because this would have set a precedent and thus threatened democracy preps plans to add more critical race theory demands on students. Remember, this is in 2019. Today is 2021 and we're about to start a whole new fall of baloney. Interestingly, Dr. Dunn, in part, posed the following question. What if a teacher forced a black female student to affirm a theory that held that being a black female should inherently be associated with negative traits, and then be required to admit she was part of the oppressed class? Well, it is an interesting question. The Clarks are just the pre-show, by the way. It's a warm-up to the big case, Stacy DeMar versus District 65 in Evanston, Illinois. Ms. DeMar, by the way, let's call her Stacy for today. She also takes on critical race theory. And when I tell you about her lawsuit filed in the United States District Court for the Northern District of Illinois Eastern Division, you'll understand what a heroic act she's attempting, and you'll come to understand just how unswervingly persistent this woman can be. I tell you, after reading the 35-page lawsuit, I had to get up and walk around the house three times and then sit down and read it again. Then I discovered she'd filed a complaint with the U.S. Department of Education, Office for Civil Rights, the OCR, in June of 2019, two years prior to her June 2021 federal lawsuit. Obviously, something never got settled by the Office of Civil Rights or Office for Civil Rights, or she wouldn't be suing the school district again. And the Office of Civil Rights is a story in and of itself that will make you sit up and pay attention to the woke Biden administration's war on whiteness, white privilege, white supremacy, oppressed blacks and oppressor whites, and their obsession with fantastical systemic racism. Yes, this is all about critical race theory. The Department of Education, the Office for Civil Rights, drafted an 18-page letter of findings by Federal Enforcement Director Carol Ashley that was triggered by a complaint Stacy filed in June of 2019. The OCR took 18 months to draft their preliminary findings. 
The Department of Education's findings said that the Evanston-Skokie School District violated civil rights law by, first, separating administrators in a professional development training program in August of 2019 into two groups based on race, white and non-white. Secondly, offering various racially exclusive affinity groups that separated students, parents, and community members by race. Third, implementing a disciplinary policy that included explicit direction to staffers to consider a student's race when meeting out discipline. Next, carried out a colorism privilege walk that separated 7th and 8th grade students into different race groups. Uh, For instance, if you're white, take two steps forward. If you're a person of color with dark skin, take two steps back. If you're a black person, take three steps back. The privilege walk exercise went about this way. According to the Evanston District 65 superintendent, the goal was for white students to learn more about white privilege, internalized dominance, microaggressions, and how to act as an ally for students of color. But Ashley of the Department of Education concluded the school district engaged in intentional race discrimination by coordinating and conducting racially exclusive affinity groups which resulted in the separation of participants in the district programs based on race in violation of Title VI regulation. She said deliberately segregating students and employees by race reduced them to a set of racial stereotypes. These materials would have led students to be treated differently based on their race, depriving them of of a class free from racial recrimination and hostility. She also said such treatment has no place in a federally funded program or any such activities, nor is it protected by the First Amendment. Uh, She continued, the district's policy to impose racial discrimination and discipline has no part in federally funded education programs or activities of any kind. Now, Stacy, who wished to remain anonymous at that time, said she received a call from Ashley on January 6th of 2021 who told her she'd issued a letter of findings that the school district's racial affinity groups program violated federal civil rights law. But she told her also that she could not get a copy of the letter until the Department of Education reached a final compliance resolution with the school district within 90 days. Boy, does justice move slow. But guess what? On January 22nd of this year, Joe Biden's second day in office, Stacy received a courtesy phone call from Ashley again, informing her that her case was being suspended due to President Biden's new executive orders on to aid racial minorities and the LGBT citizen group. The head of the Evanston Stokie School District confirmed that Biden's order had put the discrimination case on ice and they had no intention of rectifying or changing any aspect of their anti-racist programs. Wow. Of course, no one on the left who's jamming these concepts and lesson plans into school curricula calls their evil deeds critical race theory. Uh, Radical progressives employ a host of euphemisms such as social-emotional learning or culturally responsible teaching to label their efforts. And it's all unholy smoke. There's so much smoke you know that, that there must be one heck of a bunch of fires somewhere, and there are there are scores of fires across the nation. The smoke is becoming so thick 
that if you stick your head in it, it's sufficient to choke you red and then blue in the face, regardless of your skin color, whether it's white, black, or brown. There is so much information flowing about who's doing what to whom with critical race theories these days that keeping up with it is like trying to take a drink from a torrent of water screaming from a wide-open fire hydrant without getting drenched silly. These past weeks, I've been on a crash course to learn and then to keep up with critical race theory, and I've darn near drowned in articles and papers these past weeks. I've changed the toner in my heavy-duty printer three times, and I'm buying paper from Amazon by the, by the case. My wife threatens to move me into the garage if I download and print any more stories about critical race theory. Well, back to my story heroine, Stacy DeMar, who lives in Wilmot, Illinois. Wilmot is a village in New Tier Township, Cook County, Illinois. It borders Lake Michigan and is located 14 miles north of Chicago's downtown district. Stacy is a highly accomplished teacher with scores of publications, play productions, and acclaimed awards. She's the recipient of the 2015 Award of Excellence in Creative Drama from the Illinois Theater Association. This year she celebrates 26 years as an educator, teaching English and drama to 4th through 12th graders. She's been teaching creative drama for 19 years in District 65, Evanston, Skokie, elementary and middle schools to over 6,000 students. She earned both her Master's of Arts and Bachelor's in Fine Arts from New York University. And she's a proud member of the Illinois Theater Association, the America Alliance for Theater and Education, and m many other uh, professional associations. She currently teaches part-time at Nichols Middle School and previously taught part-time at King's Arts, Haven Middle School, and Kingsley Elementary all in Evanston's District 65. Uh, heads up, remember that Evanston went for Hillary, yes, the locker-up version of Hillary, by a margin of 10 to 1 over Donald Trump in 2016. Moreover, Evanston is the first town that voted to pay reparations to a number of black residents in 2020. Well, I'm dying to get into the heart of this CRT story, but first we need to do a little homework so we can better appreciate the Goliath Stacy has challenged to a court duel. We all remember Ms. Randy Weingarten, uh, right? Uh, she's the president of the American Federation of Teachers, the second largest teacher union in the country, and the teachers union that allegedly provided guidance to the CDC about closing schools. Both the National Education Association, the country's largest teachers union, and the American Federation of Teachers, AFT, are firmly connected politically and donor-wise to the Biden White House and are alleged to have high wattage influence with the Biden staff. You could all say that they're sort of crazy glued to each other politically and financially, and they're all in sync with the radical racist, anti-racist ideology of those inside the administration and all the charlatan race-baiting consultants on the outside. As a matter of fact, Americans for Public Trust, APT, this organization recently sued the CDC and filed a Freedom of Information petition to discover the email correspondence between the CDC and the American Federation of Teachers regarding school closings during the pandemic. Here's the APT's position and suspicion about what went down between the CDC and the American Federations of Teachers regarding school closings. Listen 
to the scientists. I would listen to the scientists. Get the children back to school. We know schools are safe, but Biden and his CDC secretly worked with the teachers' unions to keep schools closed. Emails obtained by Americans for Public Trust. Sacrificing kids, keeping them out of school to pay back liberal dark money groups. Teachers' unions gave him a record amount of money. Science, no. With Biden, it's always about dark money. Here's Caitlin Sutherland, America's for Public Trust Executive Director, explaining exactly what they're looking for. A few months ago, we requested emails from the CDC. However, the CDC only handed over a small portion of what we requested. And in what little they handed over, it exposed a lot. It showed the teachers' unions influenced the CDC and the White House to keep our schools closed. So now we're suing the CDC to release those remaining emails because the American people, especially parents, deserve to know the full extent that the White House allowed politics to influence policy. By filing this suit, we hope to reveal exactly what the CDC and the White House is hiding and why. We already know they've colluded with the teachers' unions, so you're right. What else do they expect us to find? Well, Americans for Public Trust has always worked to restore trust in government by exposing corruption and holding the powerful accountable. Interestingly, the American Federation of Teachers, their president, Ms. Randy Weingarten, in particular, not only claims that the American Federation of Teachers did nothing wrong in advising the CDC, but also Miss Weingarten claims that critical race theory is not being taught in schools. Well, here, listen for yourself. Here's a clip from her speech at the early July of this year's national convention. Which brings me to another attempt to suppress the truth. The new cultural campaign some lawmakers and Fox News are using to distort history, limit learning, and stoke fears about our public schools. Let's be clear. Critical race theory is not taught in elementary schools or middle schools or high schools. But culture warriors are labeling any discussion of race, racism, or discrimination as CRT to try to make it toxic. They are bullying teachers and trying to stop us from teaching students accurate history. You know who the um, culture warriors are? Uh, Those are parents, by the way. We'll come back to Randy's lie later and hear a few more of Ms. Weingarten's uh, whoppers. We We already know from the Clark case and from Stacy's experience with the Office for Civil Rights that Randy's claim about CRT in the schools is simply a lie. So stay with me here. I'm going to change gears again for a moment, but we're still on course. It's just going to, we're just going to take a more scenic back road to our main event, the Stacey DeMar battle. So here we go. Let me ask you these questions. Can, can we agree there's no greater love than a parent for their child or a child for their mother and father? Can, can we agree that children deserve our best as parents? Can we also agree that children, as they learn and grow, so goes the future of our nation. But, but going forward, the crucial question remains, will we have prepared our children to take the baton of liberty and freedom from our hands, the same birthright our forefathers bequeathed on all American generations? Or will our children drop the baton because we have failed them? Yes, because we as parents failed them because we did not prepare them, because we left it up to others to educate our children. 
heck, the way the way things are currently unfolding, we're we're likely to drop the baton of liberty and freedom ourselves before our children even come of age. But assuming we stand our ground and succeed in our battle against any more constitutional erosion in the upcoming 2022 elections, what can we do to ensure our children's future? What can we do today, regardless of where they are in their journey to adulthood? Now, trust me, it's not a college savings account. Great idea if you have the funds, but we all know circumstances where this made no difference in a, in a child's life or a child's success. So, so what then? I believe there are three foundational gifts that will allow any child's future success and happiness. The first is a stable, emotionally safe, mentoring and loving home environment. Can we all agree this isn't always possible? But it is what we'd want for ourselves and we should want for our children. The second gift is a practical government that provides for justice and equality under the law, a government that keeps us safe and provides for the national defense. When it comes to government, don't our children deserve the same gift we received? A reasonably stable, constitutionally sound environment in which to thrive as adults, and if they so choose, to raise their families? Third, we should gift our children a practical, ideologically neutral, and forward-looking education. With these three gifts, can we agree that our children have the best chance to be successful adults and citizens? Remember, we create adults one at a time. If we're successful, our nation will thrive and remain a beacon of responsible prosperity for all Americans and a model for other nations. Of these three gifts, let's focus today on the gift of education. While many may participate in crafting the gift of education, make no mistake, the responsibility for all aspects of this gift to our children belongs to you and me. It belongs to parents. This is one of those unalienable rights that have been passed down from time immemorial. The right to decide on the larger issues of our child's education belongs to parents. These rights don't belong to teachers or school boards or teachers unions, the state boards of education, or to the Federal Department of Education. Never forget these people. And there are many wonderful, knowledgeable, caring people among them. But these people work for us. Wouldn't you agree that we welcome their experience and advice and their service to our communities? But when they choose to inject their personal politics, their ideology or religious views, we must step up and say, no, stop there. If we don't dissent, then who will? And I sincerely hope you'll agree that this is a marvelous time to take a break. So I'll be here. Please come on back. It's going to be a short break. The best part is coming up. Well, my fellow Americans, how did you feel watching footage on the news of domestic terrorists looting our stores and burning our cities down? Uh, you were probably disgusted and angry as much as I was. It's disturbing what's going on. Well, you'd be shocked to know that your shopping habits are supporting these extremists. Companies like Amazon, Nike, Disney, FedEx, it's an endless list. And they've been supporting these radical groups. Let's stop supporting companies that fund these extremist groups. 
We can all do our part. Visit shoptotheright.com and you'll find businesses in a nationwide database and companies that are aligned with our American values. Visit shoptotheright.com and let's all make a difference. Each of us is born with 30 trillion cells that make us. These cells determine how we feel, perform, sleep, focus, and how long we live. And to live our best life, all we have to do is feed our cells. But most food and supplements don't reach our cells, keeping us from reaching our full potential. Make every cell count with Healthy Cell. Founded with a mission to empower people to take control of their own health at the most fundamental level, Dr. Vincent Jampapa, world-renowned cell researcher and medical doctor, created supplements that work at the cellular level to boost immune health, sleep better, focus deeper, and stay younger longer. Go to HealthyCell.com and use code OUTLOUD for 20% off your first order of any product. And that's HealthyCell.com, H-E-A-L-T-H-Y-C-E-L-L. And use code OUTLOUD for 20% off. It was a vision that gave birth to a unique multimedia platform that would combine classic talk radio, great writers, and memorable podcasts and videos. AmericaOutloud.com is a conservative leader in a field that is predominantly run by far-left progressive globalists. Welcome to the new era in communications, America Out Loud Talk Radio. Greetings and hallucinations, and welcome back to the Frankly Daniel Show. Now, where did we leave off? Ah, I doubt you would knowingly allow anyone to use your child's mind to advance their ideology, their politics, or religion without your explicit and well-informed consent or directive. These rights and responsibilities most assuredly do not belong to the myriad charlatan racial justice gangster racketeer and hoodlum consultants any of their twisted progressive radicals in state houses or in our national congress teaching twisted radical racial justice and racist anti-racist critical race theory and any of its convoluted machinations is not the business of the congressional black caucus the black lives matter organization the american federation of teachers the national education association the department of education or dr jill biden while we're righteously concerned and involved in verbal and legal battles with those who seek to wrestle America away from us and turn it into some kind of neo-Marxist racial utopia, I want to ask you, who's asking how our children are doing with reading, writing, and arithmetic? I only ask because it appears to me we're doing reading, writing, and racism in schools. With all the money we spend, how much money do we spend? As of July 1st of this year, our federal, state, and local government spent $721 billion, or around $15,000 per pupil, to fund K-12 public education. That's $15,000 for nine months of instruction. The average teacher salary for an educator with five years' experience is around 51000 And remember, this is the national average across the nation. And this is also only for nine months of teaching. By the way, the United States ranks fifth highest 
in the amount spent per pupil among the 37 other nations in the Organization for Economic Cooperation and Development, the OECD. With this level of expenditure, and with all the federal and state-funded programs and new standards and demands from legislation like No Child Left Behind, like whatever happened to that, Common Core, and yet another new one called Every Student Succeeds Act, surely test scores are improving, especially since schools have marvelous new computer technologies to support and enhance all that wonderful learning that's going on. The 2019 National Assessment of Educational Progress, the scores that they collected for math and reading, showed that 35% of fourth graders were proficient in reading. That's slightly down from 37% in 2017 and barely up from 33% in 2009. Only 34% of eighth graders were proficient in reading in 2019, a drop from 36% 36% in 2017, and only slightly higher than 32% in 2009. Folks, we're talking about proficient. We're not talking about them being English language masters or advanced mathematicians. This doesn't say 34% were excellent or outstanding performers. This is slightly better than 3 in 10 students can read at grade level. Since 1992, when the first reading assessment tests were given, the fourth and eighth graders, there's been no growth, no improvement for the lowest performing students in either of these grades. In other words, the lowest performing students are exactly where they were more than 30 years ago. As for math, 41% of fourth graders and 34% of eighth graders scored proficient in math on the 2019 tests. Now, this was largely the same since 2017. Unfortunately, these math scores haven't changed in over a decade. This despite the number of reforms at our schools over the past 10 years, like stronger academic standards, more testing, stricter teacher evaluations, school board rules discouraging schools from promoting third graders if they can't read proficient at grade level. You want some more bad news? The gap between the most competent and the least competent students has gotten bigger. The higher-scoring students have made significant gains, while the lower-achieving student scores continued to decline. Let's talk about race for a moment. These are scores out of a possible 500. In fourth-grade math, these are the scores. Asians ranked first with a score of 263. Blacks were last with an average score of 224. In eighth-grade math scores, Asians ranked first with an average of 313. Black scored on average last with a score of 260. Let's go to reading. Fourth grade reading scores. Asians ranked first with an average score of 239. Black scored last with a score of 204. Let's go to eighth grade reading scores. Asians ranked first with an average score of 284. Blacks on average scored last with a score of 244. In all scoring across the board, Whites ranked second, closely behind Asians, and Hispanics ranked third, closely just above blacks. These scores were all recorded pre-pandemic, and they're all from public school students. Many of the Hispanic and Asian students speak English as a second language. Many of the Hispanic and Asian students are also in lower socioeconomic circumstances, as are many of the blacks. The ranking on math and reading comprehension for the 4th and 8th graders 
hasn't changed in a decade. So why are blacks underperforming? Well, you guessed it. It's got to be systemic racism. And what's the cure? You got it. It's got to be critical race theory because they're being oppressed. Here's a comparison against America's standing against other developed nations. Do you realize we're one of the richest nations on the planet Earth, and yet our 15-year-old students have pathetic reading, math, and science scores compared to many less well, well-off countries? According to the 2018 Program for International Student Assessment Outcomes, the United States is eighth in reading comprehension. And in mathematics, we're behind. I mean, we're really behind. Go ahead and ask me how behind are we. We're 34th out of 37 nations in 15-year-old student math achievement. But instead of our federal government signaling concern about our nation's students and academic performance, President Joe Biden's Department of Education is intent on imposing the most radical reforms of critical race theory on American schools. This includes the uh, 1619 Project and the so-called anti-racism of Ibram X. Kendi. Well, we best get to Stacy's lawsuit. To quickly review, according to an earlier complaint Stacy filed with the U.S. Department of Education's Office for Civil Rights in June of 2019 and summarized in a January 2021 letter of finding, the district began discriminating against white staff and students and job applicants in 2017 and 2018. After 18 months, the Office for Civil Rights concluded that the Evanston's District 65 had engaged in intentional race discrimination with its use of racially exclusive affinity groups, privilege walks that separate students based on race, and a curriculum that required district staff to treat people differently based on race. District 65 also appeared to have deliberately singled out students and other individuals by their race in order to reduce them to a set of racial stereotypes. Title VI bars such discriminatory conduct. The Office for Civil Rights found that District 65's policy to explicitly consider the race of students when disciplining them also violated Title VI of the 1964 Civil Rights Act, with the ORC expressing serious concerns that District 65's anti-racist training may have created a racially hostile environment. (laughs) Notice there again that term pops up, racially hostile environment. OCR said that these training materials, if used as directed, would have led students to be treated differently based on their race, depriving them of the benefit of a classroom free from racial discrimination and hostility. The enforcement director added, such treatments have no place in federally funded programs or activities of any kind. Well, here comes the kick in the teeth. Within two days of President Joe Biden's inauguration, Stacey's discrimination complaint was suspended due to the new president's executive order, 1398-5, advancing racial equity and support for underserved communities through the federal government, which revoked former President Donald Trump's September 2020 executive order, 1395-0, combating race and sex stereotyping that targeted diversity and inclusion training programs. Who's the racist now, Mr. Jim Crow 2.0? <laughs> Stacy DeMar, uh, just using her full name in case you lost it, spell it 
D-E-E-M-A-R, six letters, D-E-E-M-A-R, plug it into Google and find her lawsuit. In any event, Tracy retained attorneys from the Roswell, Georgia-based Southeastern Legal Foundation, a conservative nonprofit legal organization. Thank the Lord for these kinds of organizations. Who could afford to carry on these kinds of suits on a teacher's salary or anybody's salary, basically? Her three-count lawsuit filed on June 29th of 2021 alleges violations of the 14th Amendment's guarantee of equal protection, intentional discrimination, and a racially hostile environment, all three in violation of Title VI. Stacy alleges she was subjected to racial harassment through mandatory race-based training, race-conscious student curriculum, segregated staff meetings and affinity groups, privilege walks, and frequent and repeated affirmation by defendants about the district's commitment to making racial distinctions among students and staff, according to Stacy's complaint. She's asking for $1 in nominal damages for the judge to declare that District 65 and its administrators violated her civil rights and order the district to take all affirmative steps necessary to remedy the unconstitutional, illegal, discriminatory conduct it practices. Well, the race-obsessed black superintendent, Dr. Devon Horton, and the seven-member District 65 board describes Stacy's lawsuit as part of a concerted national effort to target racial equity-based efforts in schools and promised to continue to fulfill the intent of the U.S. Constitution and civil rights laws. People like Dr. Horton, who are wed to critical race theory, believe that to be anti-racist, you must discriminate against white people regardless of the circumstances or situation. So he's being completely consistent. Something he has said now several times, if you're not an anti-racist, we can't have you in front of our students. Now this sounds progressive, but if you know anything about critical race theory, you can decode this to know that it means you better be prepared to denounce your whiteness and you better be prepared to discriminate against white students and always support black and Hispanic students over white students in all school affairs. Don't believe it? Well, take the time to read over any of the excellent primers and CRT toolkits put out by scores of parental organizations or the Heritage Foundation, or by Christopher Rufo at the Manhattan Institute, or most recently, there's a just a wonderful one by the Tea Party, of all places. They really did great work. Anyway, Horton went on to say, Unfortunately, this lawsuit subverts the laws and values by taking out of context and misrepresenting our district's lawful, sensitive, and responsible professional learning, and student-focused initiatives to advance the important work of building equity in our schools. Boy, I'll tell you, that's, that's really a loaded paragraph. We plan to vigorously defend this baseless and inflammatory lawsuit while not letting it distract from our important work we're doing right here in the community. Uh, in other words, racism will continue here until morale improves or all the white people leave. Now, notice Dr. Horton doesn't tell us how critical race theory practices are going to raise his district's black student reading or math scores. Uh, whoop, 
I slipped. He did mention that he was suspending any more standardized testing because these tests are based on white ideas of what's important in a curriculum, so those scores are bound to go up. Furthermore, Dr. Horton said, most of the students are wealthy and white anyway, so why do they need a test? Spoken as a true anti-racist. Oh, go ahead and digest this series of Dr. Horton public statements, if you will. In recognition of the impact of racism, Dr. Horton said, Evanston schools would give students from marginalized groups, black, Hispanic, and LGBTQ students, first priority for seats when in-person learning resumes. Now, how about that? All other students, in other words, whites and Asians, would be taught remotely. Or, in other words, they're just going to have to sit at home on their ass and wait until everybody from the minority community is taken care of. During a public meeting held by a Zoom, he went on to say, This is about equity for black and brown students, for special education students, and for our LGBTQ students. After the slew of angry letters aimed at Dr. Horton following this racist, anti-racist statement, the school board responded with an open letter to the community. And as you would expect, here it is. When you challenge policies and protocols established to ensure an equitable experience for black and brown students, you are part of a continuum of resistance to equity and the desire to maintain white supremacy. So if you speak up most certainly as loudly as Stacy did, you're a racist. And you're a problem. Now, Dr. Carina Romando is a scientist from Italy and an adjunct professor at Northwestern. She's the mother of three young children, including a son of the first grade, and apparently she didn't quite get the board's message. So she started a petition to bring all the children back to school instead of just the minorities. And it was signed by 700 people. Uh, dozens of residents who objected to the petition in the Facebook chat group for parents, attacked those who did support it as being privileged, entitled, and opportunity hoarders. I'm not exactly what that category is, opportunity hoarders. But anyway, uh, she was shocked and said, I'm being told just to sit down and shut up. I don't, I've heard that before too. I don't think that, I don't think this is right, she says. Everybody should have the right to express their opinion. Now, apparently, uh, uh, this doctor is not up on her uh, critical race theory. The uh, district has 8,000 students. The community is about 23% black and 21% Hispanic. Currently, 13% of the district's teachers are black and 9% are Hispanic. So all hiring is about diversity at this point. Stacy's attorney, Kimberly Herman, explains that the lawsuit is centered around how the district's race-conscious training policies and curriculum violate federal law through segregating its students and treating them differently because of their race. I mean, what could be more obvious? Can you imagine a day as a fourth grader in your homeroom class hearing your teacher start the day off with this spoof? Okay, class, today we're going to learn about critical race theory. Now, you don't have to like critical race theory, but if you don't, it's because you're a racist. And if you do like critical race theory, it's because you're a racist and you know you need it. Now let's take a look at the vital points of critical race theory. Point number one, 
Critical race theory says the most important thing about you is your skin color. That's what defines you as a person. Point number two. Critical race theory says that if you're white, you're racist, whether it's conscious or subconscious. Point number three. Critical race theory says if you're a minority, you're a victim of a system that's rigged against you. Point number four. Critical race theory says racism is present in all interactions. And I really can't stress this enough to all you young racists. In other words, critical race theory is a movement that seeks to bring about racial unity by creating more racial division. Perhaps this is not too far from the truth. Well, let me tell you some of the things that are in Stacy's suit. One, in the so-called anti-racist programming, District 65 requires its teachers to to accept that white individuals are loud, authoritative, and controlling. To understand to be less white is to be less racially oppressive. To acknowledge that white identity is inherently racist. To denounce white privilege. To participate in exercises with individuals of only the same color called affinity groups that is, to racially segregate themselves, to participate in so-called privilege walks, a group exercise whereby teachers standing in a line separate from each other in response to the prompt, because, because the color of my race is. 2. If teachers oppose questions or disengage from those teachings of District 65, they're blatantly called racist. When the two years of teacher training concluded, District 65 then mandated that teachers impose these racist teaching on their students. For example, District 65's curriculum for pre-K through the 8th grade students teaches, 1. Whiteness is a bad idea. It always was. 2. Racism is a white person's problem, and we are all caught up in it. 3. Students should consider what it means to be white, but not to be part of whiteness. 4. White people have a very, very serious problem, and they should start thinking about what they are going to do about it. 5. In the same way that systems and governments are controlled by white people and racism being a result of it, so is it with men controlling systems and government and messages about women being dumb, weak, and inferior being a result of that. 6. It is important to disrupt the Western nuclear family dynamics as the best or proper way to have a family. 7. Racial injustice means an act or occurrence motivated by anti-blackness or racism. 8. White people play a big role in the problems of racism today and throughout world history. 9. To treat everybody equally is a color-blind message and colored blindness helps racism. 10. Burying the truth is something many white people do to ignore racism. 11. Because of the overt and subliminal messages about black people being bad, ugly, and inferior to white people, black people feel pressure to assimilate or to throw away their culture in order to become more like white people in the hopes to be more accepted by society. 12. I think that's where we're at. Students should sign a pledge to be anti-racist. 13. Students should gather in affinity groups segregated by skin color. 
14. Students should participate in village walks. 15. White students should understand white privilege, internalized dominance, and microaggressions. Throughout its curriculum and programming, District 65 promotes and reinforces a view of race essentialism that divides Americans into oppressor and oppressed groups based solely on their skin color. District 65 sets up a dichotomy between white and non-white races that depicts whiteness as inherently racist and a tool of oppression. Whiteness is loaded up with negative value connotations, while positive traits are assigned to non-white racial identity. For instance, a lesson for third through fifth grade students on intergenerational black families and black villages teaches that black families and villages are the best and proper way to have a family, and it's important to return to a family structure that takes care of each other in contrast to the Western nuclear family. So how do you like it so far? Sounds like the kind of place you'd like your children to be educated in? Boy, wouldn't that just be a lot of fun at home every day. Of course, Stacy has evidence for everything that's said in this lawsuit, and she goes on to give more examples. For example, <laughs> District 65 defines race as a political construction created to concentrate power with white people and legitimize dominance over non-white people. District 65 defines racism as created for groups historically or currently defined as white being advantaged and groups historically defined as non-white as being disadvantaged. District 65 further explains that racism is not mere racial prejudice, but rather prejudice and power. Finally, District 65 describes whiteness as the key mechanism through which power operates. So let's hear some more. During mandatory Beyond Diversity training, District 65 inculcated through courageous conversations the idea that privilege means, quote, the amount of melanin in a person's skin, hair, and eyes. 65 taught educators that white privilege refers to the advantages that white people receive simply by virtue of being white. Similarly, District 65 sets out definitions of terms that are key to understanding its use in courageous conversations as both a teacher, in training, and in curriculum development. Now, according to District 65, privilege is unearned social power accorded by institutions of society to members of a dominant group. In our case, it's white privileged white males. White privilege is the unquestioned and unearned set of advantages, entitlements, benefits, and choices bestowed on people uh, solely because they're white. Structural white privilege is a system of white domination that creates and maintains belief systems that make current racial advantages and disadvantages seem normal. Interpersonal white privilege is behavior between people that consciously or unconsciously reflects white superiority or entitlement. Cultural white privilege is a set of dominant cultural assumptions about what is good, normal, or appropriate that reflects Western European white worldviews and dismisses or demonizes all others. How about another example from that teacher we had on earlier instructing us on how to go about thinking about these things? this down and dive deeper, shall we? Racism occurs in all interactions. It's always present. That's why you have to look for it critically. 
present in all interactions, Mr. Sears? Yes, all interactions. Please consider this common example of one white customer and one black customer walking into a store owned by a white person. If the white owner helps the white customer first, he's only doing so because he's racist and he thinks the black customer is a second-class citizen. And if the white owner was to help the black customer first, we know he's only doing so because he's racist and wants to get the black customer out of his store quickly. These lessons would be hilarious if they probably weren't true. Our time has come to an end, so sadly. So much more to come next week, though. So much more to say. Lord willing, I will return next week. I regret I have only one life to give to my fellow conservatives, and I regret I only had one hour to give to this topic today. I hope you found reading, writing, and racism informative. Please follow me on Twitter. I do follow back. You can find me at DFBHarvard, all one word, Daniel Francis Baranowski, Harvard, DFB, Harvard, uh, all one word. I can't possibly thank you enough for today. You, you were marvelous and so patient with me again. Let's do talk therapy again next week. Same place, same time. Until then, my friends, blessings and cheers. Blessings and cheers.